From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the hour, maybe you heard the news. On Tuesday, Donald Trump surrendered to the Manhattan DA, who charged him with 34 felonies. Chris Lehman will comment on whether this will help or hurt Trump in the primaries and the general election, or whether it won't make any difference, because everybody already knows what they think about Donald Trump. But first, Tuesday was the most important election of the year before November, a vote in Wisconsin for a new state Supreme Court justice. John Nichols has our report in a minute. This week, we have great news from Wisconsin. The progressive candidate for the state Supreme Court, who campaigned as a supporter of abortion rights, Janet Protosiewicz, won on Tuesday in a huge landslide. For comment and analysis, we turn, of course, to John Nichols. He's the nation's national affairs correspondent and co-author with Bernie Sanders of the new book, It's Okay to Be Angry with Capitalism. We reached him today in Madison. John, welcome back on a really good day. What a pleasure to be talking about good news. This was a 10-point victory in Wisconsin for the candidate supported by Democrats, a 200,000-vote margin. How does that compare with, say, Joe Biden in 2020? <laughs> well, that's a very good question, John. Joe Biden won Wisconsin in 2020 by around 20,000 votes. So here you have a victory for a very progressive candidate by about 10 times that much. So it's, <laughs> it's a big victory, John. And the way that you measure victories in Wisconsin is, of course, you know, you look at the, the vote total and the percentages, but you also look at the map because Wisconsin is a deeply, deeply divided state, the great battleground state of the nation. And so when you look at that map, you look and say, okay, a Democrat or a progressive, this is technically a nonpartisan race, absurdly as that may sound. Um, and so a progressive will win big in Madison, will win Milwaukee and we'll win um, a, a couple other counties. That, that's, those are pretty assured in, in any race where you do okay. But then you start to look at the rural counties in Western Wisconsin along the Mississippi, um, some of the you know, Northeastern counties. If you win there, um, that shows that you've, you've really kind of cracked things and kind of gotten to, to a new space. And Janet Protosiewicz, the progressive candidate for judge, you look at that map, it's, it's about as good a map as I've seen for a progressive in many years. So this means there will now be a pro-democracy majority on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Remind us what this new court is likely to do. Well, yeah, to do that, you have to talk about what the last court did, and yes. what the outgoing court did. And the way to understand it is that in, way back in 2010, when Scott Walker was elected governor of Wisconsin, he moved very, very quickly to enact a militant anti-labor uh, agenda, which was highly publicized. He also took a real uh, shot at voting rights, at many of the democratic pieces of the democratic infrastructure of Wisconsin, in focusing in particular on heavy-duty gerrymandering, some of the most radical gerrymandering in the country, uh, and then a host of other rulings that, that people didn't like very much. And all of these things were sustained by the court. Uh, again and again and again, this conservative court, a 4-3 conservative majority, backed up Walker. Now, with a new 4-3 liberal majority, this court has the opportunity to revisit many of those cases. And we already know that, that challenges will go up to this court. 
uh, on issues like gerrymandering. It's all but certain that, that that will be raised. And this court has the power to reopen that, that redistricting question and potentially redraw maps um, that could make Wisconsin dramatically more competitive politically. In addition, Wisconsin has an 1849 abortion law uh, that is still on the books. That's being challenged in the courts. Uh, the previous court had a 4-3 anti-choice majority. This court will have a 4-3 presumably pro-choice majority. So right there, a big deal. And the last thing I'll put in the mix is that you know Scott Walker's legacy was that of his anti-labor initiatives. Many of those anti-labor initiatives were passed in very dubious uh, circumstances in the legislature. Challenges to those initiatives have the potential to go up to the Supreme Court. And if you don't upend all of those uh, laws and his anti-worker laws, at least some of them could be tempered in some very significant ways, which for organized labor in Wisconsin would be transformative. And I would add one other thing presidential elections. Yes. 2020, Wisconsin Supreme Court was the only one in the country to agree to hear Trump's challenge to the presidential election. He wanted to invalidate 200,000 ballots from the state's two largest Democratic counties, and the court just narrowly uh, rejected that when one conservative uh, voted no, siding with three liberals, but it was on procedural grounds. Undoubtedly, 2024 is going to be another closely contested election. Now what will happen in Wisconsin? Same guys on the ballot, very possibly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, because we see to uh, keep recycling, folks. Uh, let's say that that there was a Trump challenge, uh, that it was a close election in Wisconsin. Trump was a Republican nominee and again challenged the results. If you went to the court, you now have, will have a 4-3 majority on the state Supreme Court that is absolutely committed to small D democracy. It is very unlikely that they would entertain a challenge to a legitimate election as the previous court did. Uh, and certainly if you came to a vote on the court, you would clearly have not just 4-3, the conservative that broke with the other conservatives is still on the court. So you now are looking at a, a much wider majority for respect for voting rights, respect for fair elections. And I'll throw one other thing in the mix here conservative who was running for the court this year, Dan Kelly, who actually served as a lawyer for the Republican Party and was involved in conversations about Trump's fake electors. And so if he had gotten on the court, uh, that would have been, you know, you would have had somebody there who had literally, you know, been a part of some of this scheming. And so uh, I think by any measure, what you got in the result on Tuesday night was a, a very, very clear signal of rejection of efforts to overturn elections and also really rejection of this sort of disregard for the rule of law that was very much a, a part of the previous court. Janet Protasewicz campaigned on her support for abortion rights for a woman's right to choose. I guess the top political lesson here is that abortion wins elections for Democrats. This is one in a series of elections that have shown that, but the Democrats have got to recognize that the transformative electoral power of the fight for abortion rights and abortion access. I think you have to, to say that, John. And, and uh, here's one of the real measures of it. Janet Prosevitz was in a very good position. She ran a good campaign. It was likely she was going to win, uh, but her win was big. And one of the things that made it as big as it was 
was a, a shift in voting in many suburban areas around Milwaukee that have tended to be very conservative. But as in last year's gubernatorial election, you saw uh, a shift in traditionally conservative areas uh, toward a pro-choice uh, liberal or progressive or Democrat, whichever type of race you're looking at. There's one other thing that's really significant. There was way boosted turnout on college campuses across the state. There were lines up at uh, University of Wisconsin at Eau Claire and places like that on election day. Well, that's a big deal because it's pretty clear. And I actually was on some of these campuses and talked to, to young folks who were there. They were very motivated, very mobilized by the reproductive rights issues that were at stake. For Democrats for a long time, the great challenge has been to mobilize young people who are likely to vote Democratic if they get to the polls, but you got to get them to the polls. Well, in this race, there's a lot of evidence that the reproductive rights issues got them to the polls. And what helped get them to the polls was a huge effort by independent progressive groups doing face-to-face on-the-ground organizing on campuses and also in cities and suburbs and smaller uh, cities and towns. They reported doing 535,000 targeted door knocks, uh, followed up by other kinds of voter contact, phone calls, mail, text messages, and this huge effort on uh, campuses. Meanwhile, the Democratic Party of Wisconsin, one of the best Democratic parties in the whole United States, uh, raised millions of dollars. Uh, I think you probably saw some TV ads in Madison. <laughs> we did see TV ads, John. Uh, in fact, you saw them all over the state. And and the amusing thing was there were so many of them that they piled up on top of one another. You would see a Protosawitz ad, then you'd see an ad from an independent group, then you'd see a Kelly ad, then you'd see an ad from another. And around the newscasts, they were they were just, you know, overwhelming. And they were overwhelmingly negative. I think that's an important thing to understand. I think that Protosawitz actually prevailed in the TV fight because she did it at the end of the day, kind of try to rise above it. And she actually had some positive ads about how she envisioned the courts and things like that. The Kelly campaign was just scorched earth from beginning to end. And that's not to say that the Protestant folks didn't have some negatives on Kelly. One of the most fascinating things about all of the advertising was the way in which it intersected with the indictment of Donald Trump. At the close of the campaign, obviously, uh, outside Wisconsin, nationally, the big dominant story was the Trump indictment. And the Protestant campaign went up with advertising that highlighted Kelly, the conservatives' ties to the Republican Party to Trump, to uh, efforts to overturn the election. And they had a very deep voice narrator at the end saying, you know, next Tuesday, vote as if democracy depends on it, because it does. <laughs> and um, in politics, where your, your advertising can intersect with the news, with what's mm-hmm. actually happening, mm-hmm. um, I think that has a lot of power. And I will suggest to you that the Protosawitz campaign was pretty much a model of how to how to put together uh, a very effective campaign in a circumstance like this. I think it will be studied, not just in Wisconsin, but in other states around the country, but also in general for kind of a new political model that is very aggressive from the start, does a tremendous amount of messaging via TV, but then backs that messaging up at the doors. And so, yeah, I I, I think that you mentioned that the Democratic Party in Wisconsin is is you know quite well regarded now. It wasn't a few years ago. And you you have to give credit to Ben Wickler, who is the chairman of the party. And here's one of the subtleties of it. 
the last like two or three days of the campaign, he wasn't in his office. He wasn't doing much TV. He was he was on social media. He would be on social media in small towns across Wisconsin, knocking on doors. Wow. And that that example of the chairman of the party out there in a parka on a snowy day, you know, saying, you know, we're here in this this little town and we're going to go knock on these doors, I think helped to energize a lot of other people to do that. So, uh, again, when we talk about models, I, I think this one will be studied in that regard. Now, you mentioned at the outset that there was an election in Chicago on Tuesday uh, for mayor. I read this was basically a fight between the cops and the teachers. <laughs> um, a candidate endorsed by Bernie versus a candidate supported by Betsy DeVos. How did that turn out? It turned out as a, a stunning victory for progressive Brandon Johnson, who was running against much more conservative Paul Vallis. And well, I'll tell you something, uh, John, I, I've covered races in Chicago for a long time. I wrote a lot about this race for the nation. Uh, and at the start of it, you need to understand, Brandon Johnson was not well known. He was he was a teacher and a union organizer who served as a county commissioner representing you know one section of the, of the city. Uh, and he came from behind, built a campaign that was really a movement at, at the end of the day. And I, I still think even going into the election, people tended to write him off. They tended to think, you know, this can't possibly happen, right? That that a, uh, a teacher, a union organizer coming out of the black community uh, with uh, really visionary progressive ideas on uh, criminal justice reform, on taxing the rich in Chicago, on investing in public schools, on investing in healthcare. you know, this, this whole vision that somehow he could beat um, so much of the establishment, right? A candidate in Paul Vallis, who's former, uh, very prominent, former uh, head of the schools in Chicago, very politically connected, endorsed by a lot of you know top, more centrist and conservative Democrats, and with huge money from Chicago billionaires and others. It's just like you know, how can this happen? Well, it happened in the same way, in many senses, that it did 40 years ago when Harold Washington had his breakthrough win for mayor of Chicago. What Harold Washington did was build a, a rainbow coalition, right? That that reached, you know, across lines of race and ethnicity and neighborhood. And Brandon Johnson, uh, who's who was only seven years old, I think, back <laughs> in, when that when that last race was run, uh, he knew he knew that. He knew that from the start that that this is what he was gonna have to do. And he built a coalition that kind of wove through the city. He was really uh aggressive and going out into every neighborhood and talking to people, his key to it was the support that he got from the Chicago Teachers Union, uh, which he had worked with for many years. That was very, very critical. They provided a lot of funding. SEIU was there, other unions were, and he didn't, he never blinked. He never apologized for being a, you know, a candidate of the teachers and of the unions. Um, on the other hand, his opponent, Paul Vallis, ran a, a very kind of old school, uh, 1970s style law and order campaign with the backing of the police um, and with the backing of, as I said, a lot of corporate and, and billionaire types. And it, the result was close. It wasn't a, a landslide for Brandon Johnson. He won by a, a close margin, but he pulled it off. And, and I just cannot begin to tell you that how much I think America is going to get to know the mayor of Chicago. And just as Brandon Johnson uh, kind of transformed that race in Chicago. I think he's going to become an incredibly significant figure in national politics in the United States because 
this is a guy who who's just fun. Uh, you know what I mean? He's he's smart and capable, but he's willing to you know kind of you know go out there and and uh, enjoy politics and make politics enjoyable. I'll give you a quick example. I wrote about the race and uh, had a big piece on it. And John Cusack, the actor, uh, retweeted or tweeted something about what I wrote. And if you remember John Cusack, he was in the movie, I believe it was Say Anything, where he held a boombox above his head to uh, impress a girl by playing a song you know, at the end of a driveway. So a very iconic image in film. Well, when that when uh, Brandon Johnson saw that tweet from Cusack, uh, he tweeted out an image of himself holding a, a speaker above his head. <laughs> and I mean, it went viral, of course. But you see, an awful lot of candidates don't have that flexibility, that that fluidity to, to do something like that. And and also just the confidence. And so I do think we we have a major new political figure uh, entering into our our politics, na- not just in Chicago, but nationally. Uh, and it's just a remarkable story. John Nichols bringing us the good news from Wisconsin and from Chicago today. John, thanks as always for being on the show. It's an honor to be with you, John. Maybe you heard the news. On Tuesday, Donald Trump surrendered to the Manhattan DA, who charged him with 34 counts of falsifying business records and conspiracy involving hush money payments to two women. Trump entered a plea of not guilty. For comment, we turn to Chris Lehman. He's the nation's DC bureau chief. He was formerly editor of The Baffler and The New Republic. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Chris, welcome back. Uh, always a pleasure, John. Happy to be here, especially on what could be an auspicious occasion. So what will be the political consequences of Trump's charges in the coming trial? Seems to me there's three possibilities. Trump has been saying it's going to help him with his base and make it easier for him to win the Republican nomination. That, of course, would be good for us because polls show the right now at least, that Biden would do better running against Trump than against Ron DeSantis. And Trump, of course, already lost to Biden by 7 million votes. The second possibility is that it won't help Trump win the nomination, that Republicans now may say the indictment is political and unfair, but a lot of them are going to conclude that they'd be better off in the general election with a different candidate who would support the same things Trump would do as president, but who's personal issues and problems won't dominate uh, everything. Of course, if the indictment doesn't help Trump win the nomination, that could be bad for us since DeSantis would be a stronger candidate. And the third possibility is that this whole thing doesn't matter. People decided what they thought about Trump a long time ago. Trump has always been more popular than DeSantis among Republican voters. He will continue to be. What do you think? Is this going to help or hurt Trump, or is it going to not make much difference? Well, I think it's my position is probably somewhere between option one and option three, as you <laughs> outlined it. Uh, I do think, you know, we've already seen Trump um, sort of rocket up the GOP polls in the wake of first the indictment and now the arraignment. So, yeah, it's not going to hurt him with the GOP base, which has long been used to his criminal corrupt behavior and celebrates it. 
And as to, I think it was the second option that Republicans will somehow wake up from this spell of demented enchantments that's been <laughs> gripping the party for six plus years. There's no evidence I see for that. And after all, let's not forget that, you know, the Republicans have had countless opportunities to kick Trump to the curb. Uh, January After January 6th, you know, if I cared at all about the fate of the Republican Party, I would have said that was the time. You've, you've got this toxic leader of the party. He has just jeopardized American democracy. He just lost the second major election under Trump's leadership. They also underperformed drastically in the 2022 midterms by convention, any conventional political calculus. It's time for a reset if you're a Republican. And yet, you know, the larger structural problem is the Republicans know that they have an unpopular governing agenda. No one really wants more tax cuts for the wealthy. No one really wants rampant climate denialism. No one really wants impunity for white collar crime even, uh, except Trump makes it all seem palatable to the GOP base. As you kind of outlined, it's weird to think that a Trump renomination could be the best of a set of really bad outcomes on the GOP side of things. The, the thing to remember is that at long last, I think maybe for the first time in my political lifetime, the Republicans are acting like I'm used to seeing Democrats act. <laughs> they are they don't know what to do next. They're kind of feckless. They're in retreat from all sides. So maybe I, I'm very trepidatious even saying this out loud, but maybe things could get better. <laughs> well, we we learned on Tuesday at, at midday that the charges cover not only Stormy Daniels, but also the payoffs to Karen McDougal, which is pretty interesting. This was the catch and kill system where women who reported having had sex with Trump, Karen McDougal was a former Playboy model. The way this would work is the National Enquirer would buy the rights and did buy the rights to her story, paid Karen McDougal $150,000 in exchange for a non-disclosure agreement, an NDA, that they would have the exclusive right to publish this, and then they didn't publish it. They kept it a secret because they support Trump and nobody else could either. Here's the fascinating part. Trump was supposed to reimburse the Enquirer, but he never did. He <sighs> stiffed them like he did yeah. so many of his other Whatever. creditors. Yeah. And we know this from Michael Cohen's testimony. He proposed then that when Stormy Daniels came along, that the Enquirer should make the same deal with Stormy Daniels they'd made with Karen McDougal, catch and kill her story. But the owner of the Enquirer, David Pecker, refused, as Michael Cohen explained, quote, stiffing American media, that's the corporation that publishes the Enquirer, meant they weren't going to come to his financial assistance again, close quote. And that's why Michael Cohen had to use his own money and then get reimbursed himself by Trump through these bogus legal fees. And that's where the crime occurred. If Trump had actually reimbursed the Enquirer for paying off Karen McDougal, there would not nothing have ha happened in court today. Donald yeah. Trump at work. Yeah, he is a victim of his own venality, which is a perfect accent point. And it's always important to remember that Donald Trump's political conciliary when he came of age was Roy Cohn, who 
had exactly the same pattern. There were all kinds of people demanding payment for Roy Cohn, and he just never, never paid. Roy Cohn skirted all kinds of legal actions. Uh, and I'm sure Trump had that model in his mind when he embarked on what is a plainly lunatic <laughs> scheme to create another revenue stream for Stormy Daniels. He just figured out, you know, what are they going to do? Prosecute me? <laughs> so, <laughs> so here we are. Yeah. I saw a fascinating uh, poll, the Quinnipiac poll, found that 62% of Americans believe that the the charges against Trump from Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, quote, mainly motivated by politics. And that included 70% of independents and 29% of Democrats. But the very same poll found that 57% of the same people thought criminal charges should disqualify Trump from running for president again. What do you make of that? Someone tweeted in um, who is covering the scene outside the courtroom, America's transformation into a comments section is complete. <laughs> <laughs> if you're looking for rational through lines, look elsewhere. <laughs> you pointed out at uh, thenation.com that while, of course, Trump's real crime was the conspiracy to reverse the 2020 presidential election and mobilizing his forces for a violent coup d'etat, but you pointed out that an offense very much like Trump's payoffs to his sex partners was enough for former Senator John Edwards to face six charges in federal court back in 2008. Trump uh, has been citing the acquittal of John Edwards as part of his own defense. Remind us what the story is here. Well, it was structurally very similar. Um, Edwards arranged Riel Hunter, his pregnant mistress at the time, got somewhere between $900,000 and a million dollars from Edwards's uh, political action committees for his presidential campaign. Ultimately, he was acquitted, but this is where, again, Trump's attention to detail, I think, is wanting. Um, <laughs> okay. Edwards, either deliberately or, you know, haphazardly, was not really in the loop. These were a couple of major donors who decided they just wanted to take care of the problem on his behalf and make it go away. So he did actually have, evidently, deniability in, under these federal charges as someone who just simply didn't know about the financial arrangement. It's pretty clear that Trump knew about these financial arrangements. He directly reimbursed Michael Cohen under the, this phony color of a legal expense, uh, a sum greater. <laughs> he paid Cohen, I think, $420,000 for the $130,000 payoff, which is not something that looks good either from the standpoint of being out of the loop. And why would you pay someone you know, more than three times what they had <laughs> originally arranged to be paid to this person? Because it's a criminal act. And, <laughs> and the indictment of Michael Cohen says that right. he did this act at the behest it. of individual one. Right. Who is so, Donald Trump. Who's Donald Trump. So there's already sworn testimony to that uh, effect. You wrote in The Nation, quote, the shabbiness of the indictment reminds us that Trump is a venal, blame-shifting tub of pathetically thwarted appetites in an ill-fitting power suit, close quote. That is so great, and it is so true. I am I am just glad that my editor let me have that. <laughs> but yes. 
to me, the most disturbing thing about Trump's response here is, is his statement that the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg was, quote, handpicked and funded by George Soros. What Trump is telling his supporters here is a Jewish billionaire paid a black DA to go after him. And and that description of the DA as Soros-backed was then repeated by Ron DeSantis and by some Republican leaders of the House and the Senate. It used to be that anti-Semitism was an underground thing uh, on the far right, but now both contenders for the presidential nomination are openly declaring their support for an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. This is something new in the Republican Party. Well, new-ish. You remember in 2016, uh, Trump retweeted um, gross caricatures of Soros as a classical Jewish figure, you know, with rubbing his hands together, looking, you know, sinister in this very explicit way that goes back centuries in anti-Semitic iconography. So he, in some senses, was picking up where he left off in 2016. But yeah, it is an absolutely disturbing, and it's it's worth noting here that Soros did not directly fund uh, Alvin Bragg's DA uh, candidacy, as he has expressly said. He did back political action committees to support um, progressive district attorneys. And he wrote a, an op-ed in the Rupert Mur- Murdoch-owned Wall Street Journal explaining why he was doing it. It's not some you know, big conspiracy. It's not the deep state you know, singling out Donald Trump for punishment. It's fairly standard um, donor activity. The only thing exceptional is that it was for a somewhat good cause in this case. So. <laughs> I've always been interested in the Republican Jewish coalition, right? partly because it's headed by Norm Coleman, the former senator from my home state oh, of Minnesota. I you're a native Minnesotan. I'm a native Iowan. So well, I... and, and so I know a lot about Norm Coleman, yeah. also because in the 60s, he was an activist at Yale in SDS. So he sort of went all the way yeah. from the anti-war radicalism to to Republican senator to head of the Republican Jewish coalition I looked up what they what they said about this Soros business because they do say on their website that anti-semitism is one of their main issues along with Israel and you know the other obvious uh, things uh, Matt Brooks executive director of the Republican Jewish coalition said last year that it was, quote, not anti-Semitic to highlight Soros and his work and the candidates he supports financially, his engagement makes him fair game for criticism to suggest, as some do, that attacks on Soros or anti-Semitic code words are simply wrong, close quote, the Republican Jewish coalition. So they're saying because he's a Democratic funder, it's okay to criticize his funding. What do you say to that? Well, <laughs> how much time do you have? I, I think, uh, you know, it's uh, it's very clear to anyone with eyes and ears what this messaging is. And it is an effort to send to a white nationalist base already activated behind Trump the message that the deep state and the Jews who evidently fund everything are um, out to get you. Um, and this has... This messaging has resulted in horrific violence over and over again. It's, in my view, disgraceful that Norm Coleman's group doesn't respond as any decent person with eyes and ears would. I have to say at the same time, I'm not 
terribly shocked or surprised because the right wing politics, as you said, is now all the way in the gutter and they're they're going to keep hammering away at this. And the elites on the right are complicit as they have been throughout the Trump era. It's disgusting. Of course, evangelical Christians long ago made their peace uh, with with Trump and are the key component of his base. Uh, as I understand that their argument is that didn't Jesus say that he among you who has not had sex with Stormy Daniels cast the first <laughs> <Definitely>. stone? <laughs> they, you they, joke, you joke. But Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted today that Jesus Christ was also unjustly arrested. Um, so <laughs> they are actually going there as well. And I explained to you uh, during my QAnon appearance <laughs> yes. this was going to happen and you were skeptical. I don't want to just use it as <laughs> an I told you so moment, but. Trump is continuing to embrace all of that um, martyrdom iconography. He uh, said at the unhinged Waco rally that I think is going to be a preview of the speech he's going to give tonight at Mar-a-Lago, um, that he had been singled out for punishment. And he has also said at rallies that I am your retribution. So it is pretty clear what all all of this language and imagery is is tending toward and it's really ugly you spoke with a former justice department prosecutor for the nation uh, who once worked as an intern for manhattan district attorney alvin bragg ankush cartery he told you that quote as far as justice is concerned if what you want for the country is to see donald trump in prison your first order of business should be should be what to ensure that he is not re-elected president or additionally that no republican like ron DeSantis would be elected president because trump would pardon himself DeSantis obviously would would pardon trump um this is a feature of our two-tier justice system that i don't think people are sufficiently aware of that you know maximum executive power operates under conditions of pretty much legal impunity. That's what Trump has been counting on. And I think a lot of the rationale for this, his present run at the presidency is that he knows, not just in New York, but in Georgia, or the the two um, Jack Smith prosecutions now underway at the Justice Department, he is facing a lot of legal blowback at much too late. <laughs> it's It's going to be a different dynamic than he's used to manipulating the civil justice system um, with high-powered, aggressive attorneys hounding journalists and critics um, in, in frivolous court actions. The criminal justice system is different, though, and I, I think, I don't, I'm not sure that Trump fully understands this himself, that, you know, he, he could be, I'm not saying it will happen, but when the trial is underway and if he adheres to form, he could be jailed for contempt of court very easily. You know, it's a different system. So we'll we'll see what unfolds as these multiple cases are gaining traction. If you want to see Donald Trump in prison, your first order of business should be making sure he doesn't get elected and making sure Ron DeSantis doesn't get elected. Chris Lehman, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Chris. I suppose we'll be talking about this again soon. Uh, it's, yeah, it is but the beginning. Uh, but thank <laughs> you, John. Always a pleasure.
Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.